Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are starting at Book 1, Chapter 5, Section 11 for this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider praying and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. The present edition is from the translation made by Henry Beveridge in 1845 for the Calvin Translation Society. The reader may be assured that the translation faithfully reflects the teaching of Calvin, but must also bear in mind that no translation can perfectly convey the thought of the original. Section 11 Bright, however, is the manifestation which God gives both of himself and his immortal kingdom, and the mirror of his works. So great is our stupidity, so dull are we in regard to these bright manifestations, that we derive no benefit from them. For in regard to the fabric and admirable arrangement of the universe, how few of us are there who, in lifting our eyes to the heavens, are looking abroad on the various regions of the earth, ever think of the Creator? Do we not rather overlook Him, and sluggishly content ourselves with a view of His works? And then, in regard to supernatural events, though these are occurring every day, how few are there who ascribe them to the ruling providence of God? How many who imagine that they are casual results produced by the blind evolutions of the wheel of chance? Even when, under the guidance and direction of these events, we are in a manner forced to the contemplation of God, a circumstance which all must occasionally experience, and are thus led to form some impressions of deity. We immediately fly off to carnal dreams and depraved fictions, and so by our vanity corrupt heavenly truth. This far, indeed, we differ from each other in that every one appropriates to himself some peculiar error. But we are all alike in this, that we substitute monstrous fictions for the one living and true God, a disease not confined to obtuse and vulgar minds, but affecting the noblest, and those who, in other respects, are singularly acute. How lavishly, in this respect, have the whole body of philosophers betrayed their stupidity and want of sense! To say nothing of the others whose absurdities are of a still grosser description, how completely does Plato, the soberest and most religious of them all, lose himself in his round globe! What must be the case with the rest, when the leaders who ought to have set them an example commit such blunders and labor under such hallucinations? In like manner, while the government of the world places the doctrine of providence beyond dispute, the practical result is the same as if it were believed that all things were carried hither and thither at the caprice of chance. So prone are we to vanity and error. I am still referring to the most distinguished of the philosophers, and not to the common herd, whose madness in profaning the truth of God exceeds all bounds. Section 12. Hence, that immense flood of error with which the whole world is overflowed. 
every individual mind being a kind of labyrinth. It is not wonderful not only that each nation has adopted a variety of fictions, but that almost every man has had his own god. To the darkness of ignorance have been added presumption and wantonness, and hence there is scarcely an individual to be found without some idol or phantom as a substitute for deity. Like water gushing forth from a large and copious spring, immense crowds of gods have issued from the human mind, every man giving himself full license and devising some peculiar form of divinity to meet his own views. It is unnecessary here to attempt a catalogue of the superstitions with which the world was overspread. The thing were endless, and the corruptions themselves, though not a word should be said, furnish abundant evidence of the blindness of the human mind. I say nothing of the rude and illiterate vulgar, but among the philosophers who attempted, by reason and learning, to pierce the heavens, what shameful disagreement! The higher any one was endued with genius, and the more he was polished by science and art, the more specious was the coloring which he gave to his opinions. All these, however, if examined more closely, will be found to be vain show. The Stoics plumed themselves on their acuteness when they said that the various names of God might be extracted from all the parts of nature, and yet that his unity was not thereby divided, as if we were not already too prone to vanity and had no need of being presented with an endless multiplicity of gods to lead us further and more grossly into error. The mystic theology of the Egyptians shows how sedulously they labored to be thought rational on this subject, and perhaps at the first glance some show of probability might deceive the simple and unwary. But never did any mortal devise a scheme by which religion was not foully corrupted. This endless variety and confusion emboldened the Epicureans and other gross despisers of piety to cut off all sense of God. For when they saw that the wisest contradicted each other, they hesitated not to infer from their dissensions, and from the frivolous and absurd doctrines of each, that men foolishly, and to no purpose, brought torment upon themselves by searching for a god, there being none. And they thought this inference safe, because it was better at once to deny God altogether than to feign uncertain gods, and thereafter engage in quarrels without end. They indeed argue absurdly, or rather weave a cloak for their impiety out of human ignorance, though ignorance surely cannot derogate from the prerogatives of God. But since all confess that there is no topic on which such difference exists, both among learned and unlearned, the proper inference is that the human mind which thus errs in inquiring after God is dull and blind in heavenly mysteries. Some praise the answer of Simonides, who being asked by King Hero what God was, asked a day to consider. When the king next day repeated the question, he asked two days. And after repeatedly doubling the number of days at length replied, The longer I consider, the darker the subject appears. He no doubt wisely suspended his opinion when he did not see clearly. Still his answer shows that if men are only naturally taught, instead of having any distinct, solid, or certain knowledge, they fasten only on contradictory principles and, in consequence, worship an unknown God. Section 13. Hence we must hold that whosoever adulterates pure religion, and this must be the case with all who cling to their own views, make a departure from the one God. No doubt they will allege that they have a different intention, but it is of little consequence what they intend or persuade themselves to believe, since the Holy Spirit pronounces all to be apostates who, in the blindness of their minds, substitute demons in the place of God. For this reason Paul declares that the Ephesians were, quote, without God, Ephesians 
until they had learned from the gospel what it is to worship the true God. Nor must this be restricted to one people only, since, in another place, he declares in general that all men, quote, became vain in their imaginations, after the majesty of the Creator was manifested to them in the structure of the world. Accordingly, in order to make way for the only true God, he condemns all the gods celebrated among the Gentiles as lying and false, leaving no deity anywhere but in Mount Zion, where the special knowledge of God was professed. Habakkuk 2, 18 and 20. Among the Gentiles in the time of Christ, the Samaritans undoubtedly made the nearest approach to true piety. Yet we hear from his own mouth that they worshipped they knew not what. John 4:22. Whence it follows that they were deluded by vain errors. In short, though all did not give way to gross vice, or rush headlong into open idolatry, there was no pure and authentic religion founded merely on common belief. A few individuals may not have gone all insane lengths with the vulgar. Still, Paul's declaration remains true that the wisdom of God was not apprehended by the princes of this world. 1 Corinthians 2.8 But if the most distinguished wandered in darkness, what shall we say of the refuse? No wonder, therefore, that all worship of man's device is repudiated by the Holy Spirit as degenerate. Any opinion which man can form in heavenly mysteries, though it may not beget a long train of errors, is still the parent of error. And though nothing worse should happen, even this, no light sin, to worship an unknown God at random? Of this sin, however, we hear from our Savior's own mouth, John 4.22, that all are guilty who have not been taught out of the law who the God is whom they ought to worship. Nay, even Socrates in Xenophon laws the response of Apollo enjoining every man to worship the gods according to the rites of his country and the particular practice of his own city. But what right have mortals thus to decide of their own authority in a matter which is far above the world? Or who can so acquiesce in the will of his forefathers or the decrees of the people as unhesitatingly to receive a god at their hands? Everyone will adhere to his own judgment sooner than admit to the dictation of others. Since, therefore, in regulating the worship of God, the custom of a city, or the consent of antiquity, is a too feeble and fragile bond of piety, it remains that God himself must bear witness to himself from heaven. Section 14 In vain for us, therefore, does creation exhibit so many bright lamps lighted up to show forth the glory of its author. Though they beam upon us from every quarter, they are altogether insufficient of themselves to lead us into the right path. Some sparks, undoubtedly, they do throw out, but these are quenched before they can give forth a brighter effulgence. Wherefore the apostle, in the very place where he says that the worlds are images of invisible things, adds that it is by faith we understand that they were framed by the word of God, Hebrews 11.3, thereby intimating that the invisible Godhead is indeed represented by such displays, but that we have no eyes to perceive it until they are enlightened through faith by internal revelation from God. When Paul says that that which may be known of God is manifested by the creation of the world, he does not mean such a manifestation as may be comprehended by the wit of man, Romans 1.19. On the contrary, he shows that it has no further effect than to render us inexcusable, Acts 17.27. And though he says elsewhere that we have not far to seek for God inasmuch as he dwells within us, he shows in another passage to what extent this nearness to God is availing. 
God, he says, quote, in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Acts 14, 16, and 17. But though God is not left without a witness, while, with numberless varied acts of kindness, he woos men to the knowledge of himself, yet they cease not to follow their own ways, in other words, deadly errors. Section 15. But though we are deficient in natural powers which might enable us to rise to a pure and clear knowledge of God, still, as the dullness which prevents us is within, there is no room for excuse. We cannot plead ignorance without being at the same time convicted by our own consciences, both of sloth and ingratitude. It were indeed a strange defense for man to pretend that he has no ears to hear the truth, while dumb creatures have voices loud enough to declare it, to allege that he is unable to see that which creatures without eyes demonstrate, to excuse himself on the ground of weakness of mind, while all creatures without reason are able to teach. Wherefore, when we wander and go astray, we are justly shut out from every species of excuse, because all things point to the right path. But while man must bear the guilt of corrupting the seed of divine knowledge so wondrously deposited in his mind, and preventing it from bearing good and genuine fruit, it is still most true that we are not sufficiently instructed by that bare and simple but magnificent testimony which the creatures bear to the glory of their Creator. For no sooner do we from a survey of the world, obtain some slight knowledge of deity, then we pass by the true God, and set up in his stead the dream and phantom of our own brain, drawing away the praise of justice, wisdom, and goodness from the fountainhead, and transferring it to some other quarter. Moreover, by the erroneous estimate we form, we either so obscure or pervert his daily works, as at once to rob them of their glory, and the author of them of his just praise." Chapter 6 The Need of Scripture as a Guide and Teacher in Coming to God as a Creator There are four sections. Section 1 Therefore, though the effulgence which is presented to every eye, both in the heavens and on the earth, leaves the ingratitude of man without excuse, since God, in order to bring the whole human race under the same condemnation, holds forth to all, without exception, a mirror of his deity in his works, another and better help must be given to guide us properly to God as a Creator. Not in vain, therefore, has he added the light of his word in order that he might make himself known unto salvation, and bestowed the privilege on those whom he was pleased to bring into nearer and more familiar relation to himself. For, seeing how the minds of men were carried to and fro, and found no certain resting place, he chose the Jews for a peculiar people, and then hedged them in that they might not, like others, go astray. And not in vain does he, by the same means, retain us in his knowledge, since, but for this, even those who, in comparison of others, seem to stand strong, would quickly fall away. For as the aged are those whose sight is defective, when any book, however fair, is set before them, though they perceive that there is something written, are scarcely able to make out two consecutive words. But, when aided by glasses, begin to read distinctly. So Scripture, gathering together the impressions of deity, which, till then, lay confused in their minds, dissipates the darkness, and shows us the true God clearly. God, therefore, bestows a gift of singular value when, for the instruction of the church, he employs not dumb teachers merely, but opens his own sacred mouth. When he not only proclaims that some God must be worshipped, but at the same time declares that he is the God to whom worship is due. When he not only teaches his elect to have respect to God, 
but manifests himself as the God to whom this respect should be paid. The course which God followed towards his church from the very first was to supplement these common proofs by the addition of his word as a surer and more direct means of discovering himself. And there can be no doubt that it was by this help Adam, Noah, Abraham, and the other patriarchs attained to that familiar knowledge which, in a manner, distinguished them from unbelievers. I am not now speaking of the peculiar doctrines of faith by which they were elevated to the hope of eternal blessedness. It was necessary in passing from death unto life that they should know God not only as a creator but as a redeemer also. And both kinds of knowledge they certainly did obtain from the word. In point of order, however, the knowledge first given was that which made them acquainted with God by whom the world was made and is governed. To this first knowledge was afterwards added the most intimate knowledge which alone quickens dead souls, and by which God is known, not only as the creator of the world, and the sole author and disposer of all events, but also as a redeemer in the person of the mediator. But as the fall and the corruption of nature have not yet been considered, I now postpone the consideration of the remedy. For which book, see Book 2, Chapter 6, and following. Let the reader then remember that I am not now treating of the covenant by which God adopted the children of Abraham, or of that branch of doctrine by which, as founded in Christ, believers have, properly speaking, been in all ages separated from the profane heathen. I am only showing that it is necessary to apply to Scripture in order to learn the sure marks which distinguish God as creator of the world from the whole herd of fictitious gods. We shall afterward, in due course, consider the work of redemption. In the meantime, though we shall adduce many passages from the New Testament, and some also from the Law and the Prophets, in which express mention is made of Christ, the only object will be to show that God, the Maker of the world, is manifested to us in Scripture, and His true character expounded, so as to save us from wandering up and down, as in a labyrinth, in search of some doubtful deity. Section 2 whether God revealed himself to the fathers by oracles and visions, or by the instrumentality and ministry of men suggested what they were to hand down to posterity, there cannot be a doubt that the certainty of what he taught them was firmly engraven on their hearts, so that they felt assured and knew that the things which they learnt came forth from God, who invariably accompanied his word with a sure testimony, infinitely superior to the mere opinion. At length, in order that while doctrine was continually enlarged, its truth might subsist in the world during all ages, it was his pleasure that the same oracles which he had deposited with the fathers should be consigned, as it were, to public records. With this view, the law was promulgated, and prophets were afterwards added to be interpreters. For though the uses of the law were manifold, book 2, chapter 7 and 8, and the special office assigned to Moses and all the prophets was to teach the method of reconciliation between God and man, whence Paul calls Christ the end of the law, Romans 10.4. Still, I repeat that, in addition to the proper doctrine of faith and repentance, in which Christ is set forth as a mediator, the scriptures employ certain marks and tokens to distinguish the only wise and true God, considered as the creator and governor of the world, and thereby guard against his being confounded with the herd of false deities. Therefore, while it becomes man seriously to employ his eyes in considering the works of God, since a place has been assigned him in this most glorious theater that he may be a spectator of them, his special duty is to give ear to the word that he may the better profit. Hence it is not strange that those who are born in darkness become more and more hardened in their stupidity, 
because the vast majority, instead of confining themselves within due bounds by listening with docility to the word, exult in their own vanity. If true religion is to beam upon us, our principle must be that it is necessary to begin with heavenly teaching, and that it is impossible for any man to obtain even the minutest portion of right and sound doctrine without being a disciple of Scripture. Hence, the first step in true knowledge is taken when we reverently embrace the testimony which God has been pleased therein to give of himself. For not only does faith, full and perfect faith, but all correct knowledge of God originate in obedience. And surely in this respect God has with singular providence provided for mankind in all ages. Section 3 for if we reflect how prone the human mind is to lapse into forgetfulness of God, how readily inclined to every kind of error, how bent every now and then on devising new and fictitious religions, it will be easy to understand how necessary it was to make such a depository of doctrine as would secure it from either perishing by the neglect, vanishing away amid the errors, or being corrupted by the presumptuous audacity of men. It being thus manifest that God, foreseeing the inefficiency of his image imprinted on the fair form of the universe, has given the assistance of his word to all whom he has ever been pleased to instruct effectually. We too must pursue this straight path if we aspire in earnest to a genuine contemplation of God. We must go, I say, to the word where the character of God drawn from his works is described accurately and to the life these works being estimated not by our depraved judgment, but by the standard of eternal truth. If, as I lately said, we turn aside from it, how great soever the speed with which we move, we shall never reach the goal because we are off the course. We should consider that the brightness of the divine countenance, which even an apostle declares to be inaccessible, 1 Timothy 6.16, is a kind of labyrinth, a labyrinth to us inextricable, if the word do not serve us as a thread to guide our path, and that it is better to limp in the way than run with the greatest swiftness out of it. Hence the psalmist, after repeatedly declaring that superstition should be banished from the world in order that pure religion may flourish, introduces God as reigning, meaning by the term not the power which he possesses and which he exerts in the government of universe nature, but the doctrine by which he maintains his due supremacy because error can never be eradicated from the heart of man until the true knowledge of God has been implanted in it. Section 4 Accordingly, the same prophet, after mentioning that the heavens declare the glory of God, that the firmament showeth forth the works of his hands, and that the regular succession of day and night proclaim his majesty, proceeds to make mention of the word. Quote, the law of the Lord, says he, is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 19, 1-9 For though the law has other uses besides, as to which see Book 2, Chapter 7, Sections 6, 10, and 12, the general meaning is that it is the proper school for training the children of God. The invitation given to all nations to behold Him in the heavens and earth proving of no avail. The same view is taken in the 29th Psalm, where the psalmist, after discoursing on the dreadful voice of God, which in thunder, wind, rain, whirlwind, and tempest, shakes the earth, makes the mountains tremble, and breaks the cedars, concludes by saying, quote, that in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory, unbelievers being deaf to all God's words when they echo in the air. In like manner, another psalm, after describing the raging billows of the sea, thus concludes, quote, Thy testimonies are very sure, 
Holiness becometh thine house forever. Psalm 93.5 To the same effect are the words of our Savior to the Samaritan woman, when he told her that her nation and all other nations worshipped they knew not what, and that the Jews alone gave worship to the true God. John 4.22 Since the human mind through its weakness, was altogether unable to come to God if not aided and upheld by his sacred word, it necessarily followed that all mankind, the Jews excepted, inasmuch as they sought God without the word, were laboring under vanity and error. Chapter 7. The Testimony of the Spirit Necessary to Give Full Authority to Scripture The Impiety of Pretending that the Credibility of Scripture Depends on the Judgment of the Church There are five sections. Section 1. Before proceeding farther, it seems proper to make some observations on the authority of Scripture, in order that our minds may not only be prepared to receive it with reference, but be divested of all doubt. When that which professes to be the Word of God is acknowledged to be so, no person, unless devoid of common sense and the feelings of a man, will have the desperate hardihood to refuse credit to the speaker. But since no daily responses are given from heaven, and the Scriptures are the only records in which God has been pleased to consign His truth to perpetual remembrance, the full authority with which they ought to possess with the faithful is not recognized unless they are believed to have come from heaven, as directly as if God had been heard giving utterance to them. This subject well deserves to be treated more at large and pondered more accurately. But my readers will pardon me for having more regard to what my plan admits than to what the extent of this topic requires. A most pernicious error has very generally prevailed, viz., that Scripture is of importance only insofar as conceded to it by the suffrage of the Church, as if the eternal and inviolable truth of God could depend on the will of men. With great insult to the Holy Spirit it is asked, Who can assure us that the Scriptures proceeded from God? Who guarantee that they have come down safe and unimpaired to our times? Who persuade us that this book is to be received with reverence? And that one expunged from the list did not the Church regulate all these things with certainty? On the determination of the Church, therefore, it is said, depend both the reverence which is due to Scripture and the books which are to be admitted into the canon. Thus profane men, seeking, under the pretext for the church, to introduce unbridled tyranny, care not in what absurdities they entangle themselves and others, provided they extort from the simple this one acknowledgment, viz., that there is nothing which the church cannot do. But what is to become of miserable consciences in quest of some solid assurance of eternal life, if all the promises with regard to it have no better support than man's judgment? On being told so, will they cease to doubt and tremble? On the other hand, to what jeers of the wicked is our faith subjected, and to how great suspicion is it brought withal, if believed to have only a precarious authority lent to it by the good will of men? Section 2. These ravings are admirably refuted by a single expression of an apostle. Paul testifies that the church is, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20. If the doctrine of the apostles and prophets is the foundation of the church, the former must have had its certainty before the latter began to exist. Nor is there any room for the cavil, that though the church derives her first beginning from thence, it still remains doubtful what writings are to be attributed to the apostles and prophets until her judgment is interposed. For if the Christian church was founded at first on the writings of the prophets, and the preaching of the apostles, that doctrine, wheresoever it may be found, was certainly ascertained and sanctioned antecedently to the church, since, but for this, the church herself never could have existed. 
Nothing, therefore, can be more absurd than the fiction that the power of judging Scripture is in the Church, and that on her nod its certainty depends. When the Church receives it and gives it the stamp of her authority, she does not make that authentic which was otherwise doubtful or controverted, but, acknowledging it as the truth of God, she, as in duty bound, shows her reverence by an unhesitating assent. As to the question, how shall we be persuaded that it came from God without recurring to a decree of the church? It is just the same as if it were asked, how shall we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter? Scripture bears upon the face of it as clear evidence of its truth, as white and black do of their color, sweet and bitter of their taste. Section 3 I am aware it is usual to quote a sentence of Augustine, in which he says that he would not believe the gospel were he not moved by the authority of the church. But it is easy to discover from the context how inaccurate and unfair it is to give it such a meaning. He was reasoning against the Manichees, who insisted on being implicitly believed, alleging that they had the truth, though they did not show they had. But as they pretended to appeal to the gospel in support of Mainz, he asks what they would do if they fell in with a man who did not even believe the gospel, what kind of argument they would use to bring him over to their opinion. He afterward adds, but I would not believe the gospel, meaning that were he a stranger to the faith, the only thing which could induce him to embrace the gospel would be the authority of the church. And is it anything wonderful that one who does not know Christ should pay respect to men? Augustine, therefore, does not here say that the faith of the godly is founded on the authority of the church, nor does he mean that the certainty of the gospel depends upon it. He merely says that unbelievers would have no certainty of the gospel, so as thereby to win Christ, were they not influenced by the consent of the church. And he clearly shows this to be his meaning, by thus expressing himself a little before, quote, When I have praised my own creed and ridiculed yours, who do you suppose is to judge between us? Or what more is to be done than to quit those who, inviting us to certainty, afterwards command us to believe uncertainty, and follow those who invite us, in the first instance, to believe what we are not yet able to comprehend, that waxing stronger through faith itself we may become able to understand what we believe, no longer man but God himself, internally strengthening and illuminating our minds. Unquote. These unquestionably are the words of Augustine. And the obvious inference from them is that this holy man had no intention to suspend our faith in Scripture on the nod or decision of the church, but only to intimate what we too admit to be true, that those who are not yet enlightened by the Spirit of God become teachable by reverence for the church, and thus submit to learn the faith of Christ from the gospel. In this way, though the authority of the church leads us on and prepares us to believe in the gospel, it is plain that Augustine would have the certainty of the godly to rest on a very different foundation. At the same time, I deny not that he often presses the Manichees with the consent of the whole church, while arguing in support of the scriptures which they rejected. Hence, he upbraids Faustus for not submitting to evangelical truth truth so well founded, so firmly established, so gloriously renowned, and handed down by sure succession from the days of the apostles. But he nowhere insinuates that the authority which we give to the scriptures depends on the definitions or devices of men. He only brings forward the universal judgment of the church as a point most pertinent to the cause, and one, moreover, in which he had the advantage of his opponents. Anyone who desires to see this more fully proved may read his short treatise, De utilitate credendi, the advantages of believing, 
where it will be found that the only facility of believing which he recommends is that which affords an introduction and forms a fit commencement to inquiry, while he declares that we ought not to be satisfied with opinion, but to strive after substantial truth. Section 4. It is necessary to attend to what I lately said, that our faith in doctrine is not established until we have a perfect conviction that God is its author. Hence, the highest proof of Scripture is uniformly taken from the character of him whose word it is. The prophets and apostles boast not their own acuteness, or any qualities which win credit to speakers, nor do they dwell on reasons. But they appeal to the sacred name of God, in order that the whole world may be compelled to submission. The next thing to be considered is how it appears not probable merely, but certain, that the name of God is neither rashly nor cunningly pretended. If, then, we would consult most effectually for our consciences, and save them from being driven about in a whirl of uncertainty, from wavering and even stumbling at the smallest obstacle, our conviction of the truth of Scripture must be derived from a higher source than human conjectures, judgments, or reasons, namely, the secret testimony of the Spirit. It is true, indeed, that if we choose to proceed in the way of argument, it is easy to establish by evidence of various kinds that if there is a God in heaven, the law, the prophecies, and the gospel proceeded from him. Nay, although learned men and men of the greatest talent should take the opposite side, summoning and ostentatiously displaying all the powers of their genius in the discussion, if they are not possessed of shameless effrontery, they will be compelled to confess that the Scripture exhibits clear evidence of its being spoken by God and, consequently, of its containing His heavenly doctrine. We shall see a little farther on that the volume of sacred Scripture very far surpasses all other writings. Nay, if we look at it with clear eyes and unbiased judgment, it will forthwith present itself with a divine majesty, which will subdue our presumptuous opposition and force us to do it homage. Still, however, it is preposterous to attempt by discussion to rear up a full faith in Scripture. True, were I called to contend with the craftiest despisers of God, I trust, though I am not possessed of the highest ability or eloquence, I should not find it difficult to stop their obstreperous mouths. I could, without much ado, put down the boastings which they mutter in corners, were anything to be gained by refuting their cavils. But although we may maintain the sacred word of God against gainsayers, it does not follow that we shall forthwith implant the certainty which faith requires in our hearts. Profane men think that religion rests only on opinion, and, therefore, that they may not believe foolishly, or on slight grounds desire and insist to have it proved by reason that Moses and the prophets were divinely inspired. But I answer that the testimony of the Spirit is superior to reason. For as God alone can properly bear witness to his own words, so these words will not obtain full credit in the hearts of men until they are sealed by the inward testimony of the Spirit. The same Spirit, therefore, who spoke by the mouth of the prophets, must penetrate our hearts in order to convince us that they faithfully delivered the message with which they were divinely entrusted. This connection is most aptly expressed by Isaiah in these words, quote, My Spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. Isaiah 59, 21. 
Some worthy persons feel disconcerted because, while the wicked murmur with impunity at the word of God, they have not a clear proof at hand to silence them, forgetting that the Spirit is called in earnest and sealed to confirm the faith of the godly, for this very reason that, until he enlightens their minds, they are tossed to and fro in a sea of doubts. Section 5. Let it therefore be held as fixed, that those who are inwardly taught by the Holy Spirit acquiesce implicitly in Scripture that Scripture, carrying its own evidence along with it, designs not to submit to proofs and arguments, but owes the full conviction with which we ought to receive it to the testimony of the Spirit. Enlightened by Him, we no longer believe, either on our own judgment or that of others, that the Scriptures are from God, but, in a way superior to human judgment, feel perfectly assured, as much so as if we beheld the divine image visibly impressed on it, that it came to us by the instrumentality of men from the very mouth of God. We ask not for proofs or probabilities on which to rest our judgment, but we subject our intellect and judgment to it as too transcendent for us to estimate. This, however, we do not in the manner in which some are wont to fasten on an unknown object, which, as soon as known, displeases, but because we have a thorough conviction that, in holding it, we hold unassailable truth, not like miserable men whose minds are enslaved by superstition, but because we feel a divine energy living and breathing in it, an energy by which we are drawn and animated to obey it, willingly indeed and knowingly, but more vividly and effectually than could be done by human will or knowledge. Hence, God most justly exclaims by the mouth of Isaiah, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Isaiah 43.10 Such, then, is a conviction which asks not for reasons. Such a knowledge which accords with the highest reason, namely, knowledge in which the mind rests more firmly and securely than in any reasons. Such, in fine, the conviction which revelation from heaven alone can produce. I say nothing more than every believer experiences in himself, though my words fall far short of the reality. I do not dwell on this subject at present, because we will return to it again. Only let us now understand that the only true faith is that which the Spirit of God seals on our hearts. Nay, the modest and teachable reader will find a sufficient reason in the promise contained in Isaiah that all the children of the renovated church, quote, shall be taught of the Lord. Isaiah 54.13 This singular privilege God bestows on his elect only, whom he separates from the rest of mankind. For what is the beginning of true doctrine but prompt alacrity to hear the word of God? And God, by the mouth of Moses, thus demands to be heard, quote, It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart. Deuteronomy 30:12 and 14. God, having been pleased to reserve the treasure of intelligence for his children, no wonder that so much ignorance and stupidity is seen in the generality of mankind. In the generality, I include even those specially chosen until they are engrafted into the body of the church. Isaiah, moreover, while reminding us that the prophetical doctrine, which prove incredible not only to strangers but also to the Jews, who were desirous to be thought of the household of God, subjoins the reason when he asks, quote, To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53.1 if at any time, then, we are troubled at the small number of those who believe, let us, on the other hand, call to mind that none comprehend the mysteries of God, save those to whom it is given. Chapter 8. The Credibility of Scripture Sufficiently Proved, Insofar as Natural Reason Admits.
There are thirteen sections. Section 1. In vain were the authority of Scripture fortified by argument, are supported by the consent of the Church, are confirmed by any other helps, if unaccompanied by an assurance higher and stronger than human judgment can give. Till this better foundation has been laid, the authority of Scripture remains in suspense. On the other hand, when recognizing its exemption from the common rule, we receive it reverently, and according to its dignity those proofs which were not so strong as to produce and rivet a full conviction in our minds become most appropriate helps. For it is wonderful how much we are confirmed in our belief when we more attentively consider how admirably the system of divine wisdom contained in it is arranged, how perfectly free the doctrine is from everything that savors of earth, how beautifully it harmonizes in all its parts, and how rich it is in all the other qualities which give an air of majesty to composition. Our hearts are still more firmly assured when we reflect that our admiration is excited more by the dignity of the matter than by the graces of style. For it was not without an admirable arrangement of providence that the sublime mysteries of the kingdom of heaven have for the greater part been delivered with a contemptible meanness of words. Had they been adorned with a more splendid eloquence, the wicked might have cavilled and alleged that this constituted all their force. But now, when an unpolished simplicity, almost bordering on rudeness, makes a deeper impression than the loftiest flights of oratory, what does it indicate if not that the holy scriptures are too mighty in the power of truth to need the rhetorician's art. Hence, there was good ground for the apostles' declaration that the faith of the Corinthians was founded not on, quote, the wisdom of men, but on, quote, the power of God, 1 Corinthians 2.5. His speech and preaching among them having been, quote, not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, 1 Corinthians 2.5. For the truth is vindicated in opposition to every doubt when, unsupported by foreign aid, it has its sole sufficiency in itself. How peculiarly this property belongs to Scripture appears from this, that no human writings, however skillfully composed, are at all capable of affecting us in a similar way. Read Demosthenes, or Cicero, read Plato, Aristotle, or any other of that class, you will, I admit, feel wonderfully allured, pleased, moved, enchanted, but turn from them to the reading of the sacred volume, and whether you will or not, it will so affect you, so pierce your heart, so work its way into your very marrow, that, in comparison of the impression so produced, that of orators and philosophers will almost disappear making it manifest that in the sacred volume there is a truth divine, a something which makes it immeasurably superior to all the gifts and graces attainable by man. Section 2 I confess, however, that in elegance and beauty, nay, splendor, the style of some of the prophets is not surpassed by the eloquence of heathen writers. By examples of this description, the Holy Spirit was pleased to show that it was not from want of eloquence he, in other instances, used a rude and homely style. But whether you read David, Isaiah, and others of the same class, whose discourse flows sweet and pleasant, or Amos the herdsman, Jeremiah, and Zephariah, whose rougher idiom savors of rusticity, that majesty of the Spirit to which I averted appears conspicuous in all. 
I am not unaware that as Satan often apes God, that he may, by a fallacious resemblance, the better insinuate himself into the minds of the simple, so he craftily disseminated the impious errors with which he deceived miserable men in an uncouth and semi-barbarous style, and frequently employed obsolete forms of expression in order to cloak his impostures. None possessed of any moderate share of sense need be told how vain and vile such affectation is. But in regard to the Holy Scriptures, however petulant men may attempt to carp at them, they are replete with sentiments, which it is clear that man never could have conceived. Let each of the prophets be examined, and not one will be found who does not rise far higher than human reach. Those who feel their works insipid must be absolutely devoid of taste. Section 3 As this subject has been treated at large by others, it will be sufficient here merely to touch on its leading points. In addition to the qualities already mentioned, great weight is due to the antiquity of Scripture. Whatever fables Greek writers may retail concerning the Egyptian theology, no monument of any religion exists which is not long posterior to the age of Moses. But Moses does not introduce a new deity. He only sets forth that doctrine concerning the eternal God which the Israelites had received by tradition from their fathers, by whom it had been transmitted, as it were, from hand to hand during a long series of ages. For what else does he do than lead them back to the covenant which had been made with Abraham? Had he referred to matters of which they had never heard, he never could have succeeded. But their deliverance from the bondage in which they were held must have been a fact of familiar and universal notoriety, the very mention of which must have immediately aroused the attention of all. It is, moreover, probable that they were intimately acquainted with the whole period of four hundred years. Now if Moses, who is so much earlier than all other writers, traces the tradition of his doctrine from so remote a period, it is obvious how far the Holy Scriptures must, in point of antiquity, surpass all other writings. Section 4 Some, perhaps, may choose to credit the Egyptians in carrying back their antiquity to a period of 6,000 years before the world was created. But their garrulity, which even some profane authors have held up to derision, it cannot be necessary for me to refute. Josephus, however, in his work against Appian, produces important passages from very ancient writers, implying that the doctrine delivered in the law was celebrated among all nations from the remotest ages, though it was neither read nor accurately known. And then, in order that the malignant might have no ground for suspicion, and the ungodly no handle for cavil, God has provided in the most effectual manner against both dangers. When Moses relates the words which Jacob, under divine inspiration, uttered concerning his posterity almost three hundred years before, how does he ennoble his own tribe? He stigmatizes it with eternal infamy in the person of Levi. Quote, Simeon and Levi, says he, are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Unto their assembly mine honor be not thou united. Genesis 49, verses 5 and 6. This stigma he certainly might have passed in silence, not only that he might spare his own ancestor, but also save both himself and his whole family from a portion of the disgrace. How can any suspicion attach to him, who, by voluntarily proclaiming that the first founder of his family was declared detestable by a divine oracle, neither consults for his own private interest, nor declines to incur obloquy among his tribe, who must have been offended by his statement of the fact. Again, when he relates the wicked murmuring of his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, 
Numbers 12.1, shall we say that he spoke his own natural feelings or that he obeyed the command of the Holy Spirit? Moreover, when invested with supreme authority, why does he not bestow the office of high priest on his sons, instead of consigning them to the lowest place? I only touch on a few points out of many. But the law itself contains throughout numerous proofs which fully vindicate the credibility of Moses and place it beyond dispute that he was in truth a messenger sent forth from God. Section 5 The many striking miracles which Moses relates are so many sanctions of the law delivered and the doctrine propounded by him. His being carried up into the mount in a cloud, his remaining there forty days separated from human society, his countenance glistening during the promulgation of the law as with meridian effulgence, the lightnings which flashed on every side, the voices and thunderings which echoed in the air, the clang of the trumpet blown by no human mouth, his entrance into the tabernacle, while a cloud hid him from the view of the people, the miraculous vindication of his authority by the fearful destruction of Korah, Dathan, and Abram, and all their impious faction, the stream instantly gushing forth from the rock when struck with his rod, the manna which rained from heaven at his prayer, did not God by all these proclaim aloud that he was an undoubted prophet? If any one object that I am taking debatable points for granted, the cavil is easily answered. Moses published all these things in the assembly of the people. How, then, could he possibly impose on the very eyewitnesses of what was done? Is it conceivable that he would have come forward and, while accusing the people of unbelief, obstinacy, ingratitude, and other crimes, have boasted that his doctrine had been confirmed in their own presence by miracles which they never saw? Section 6 For it is also worthy of remark that the miracles which he relates are combined with disagreeable circumstances, which must have provoked opposition from the whole body of the people if there had been the smallest ground for it. Hence it is obvious that they were induced to assent merely because they had been previously convinced by their own experience. But because the fact was too clear to leave it free for heathen writers to deny that Moses did perform miracles, the father of lies suggested a calumny and ascribed them to magic. Exodus 9.11 but with what probability is a charge of magic brought against him, who held it in such abhorrence that he ordered everyone who should consult soothsayers and magicians to be stoned? Leviticus 36. Assuredly, no impostor deals in tricks without studying to raise his reputation by amazing the common people. But what does Moses do? By crying out that he and Aaron his brother are nothing. Exodus 16.7 that they merely execute what God has commanded. He clears himself from every approach to suspicion. Again, if the facts are considered in themselves, what kind of incantation could cause manna to rain from heaven every day, and in sufficient quantity to maintain a people while anyone who gathered more than the appointed measure saw his incredulity divinely punished by its turning to worms? To this we may add that God then suffered his servant to be subjected to so many serious trials that the ungodly cannot now gain anything by their clamor. When, as often happened, the people proudly and petulantly rose up against him when individuals conspired and attempted to overthrow him, how could any impostures have enabled him to elude their rage? The event plainly shows that by these means his doctrine was attested to all succeeding ages. Section 7 Moreover, it is impossible to deny that he was guided by a prophetic spirit in assigning the first place to the tribe of Judah in the person of Jacob, especially if we take into view the fact itself as explained by the event. 
Suppose that Moses was the inventor of the prophecy. Still, after he committed it to writing, four hundred years pass away, during which no mention is made of a scepter in the tribe of Judah. After Saul is anointed, the kingly office seems fixed in the tribe of Benjamin, 1 Samuel 11.15 and 16.13. When David is anointed by Samuel, what apparent ground is there for the transference? Who could have looked for a king out of the plebeian family of a herdsman? And out of seven brothers, who could have thought that the honor was destined for the youngest? And then by what means did he afterwards come within reach of the throne? Who dare say that his anointing was regulated by human art, or skill, or prudence, and was not rather the fulfillment of a divine prophecy? In like manner, do not the predictions, though obscure, of the admission of the Gentiles into the divine covenant, seeing they were not fulfilled till almost two thousand years after, make it palpable that Moses spoke under divine inspiration? I omit other predictions which so plainly betoken divine revelation that all men of sound mind must see they were spoken by God. In short, his song itself, Deuteronomy 32, is a bright mirror in which God is manifestly seen. Section 8. In the case of the other prophets, the evidence is even clearer. I will only select a few examples, for it were too tedious to enumerate the whole. Isaiah, in his own day, when the kingdom of Judah was at peace, and had even some ground to confide in the protection of the Chaldeans, spoke of the destruction of the city, and the captivity of the people. Isaiah 45.1. Supposing it not to be sufficient evidence of divine inspiration to foretell, many years before, events which, at the time, seemed fabulous, but which ultimately turned out to be true, whence shall it be said that the prophecies which he uttered concerning their return proceeded, if it was not from God? He named Cyrus, by whom the Chaldeans were to be subdued, and the people restored to freedom. After the prophet thus spoke, more than a hundred years elapsed before Cyrus was born, that being nearly the period which elapsed between the death of the one and the birth of the other. It was impossible at that time to guess that some Cyrus would arise to make war on the Babylonians, and after subduing their powerful monarchy, put an end to the captivity of the children of Israel. Does not this simple, unadorned narrative plainly demonstrate that what Isaiah spoke was not the conjecture of man, but the undoubted oracle of God? Again, when Jeremiah, a considerable time before the people were led away, assigned seventy years as the period of captivity, and fixed their liberation and return, must not his tongue have been guided by the Spirit of God? What effrontery were it to deny that, by these evidences, the authority of the prophets is established, the very thing being fulfilled to which they appeal in support of their credibility? Quote, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah 42.9 I say nothing of the agreement between Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who, living so far apart, and yet prophesying at the same time, harmonize as completely in all they say, as if they had mutually dictated the words to one another. What shall I say of Daniel? Did not he deliver prophecies embracing a future period of almost six hundred years as if he had been writing of past events generally known? Daniel 9 and others. If the pious will duly meditate on these things, they will be sufficiently instructed to silence the cavils of the ungodly. The demonstration is too clear to be gainsaid. Section 9 I am aware of what is muttered in corners by certain iscreants, when they would display their acuteness in assailing divine truth. They ask, 
How do we know that Moses and the prophets wrote the books which now bear their names? Nay, they even dare to question whether there ever was a Moses. Were any one to question whether there ever was a Plato or an Aristotle or a Cicero, would not the rod or the whip be deemed to fit chastisement of such folly? The law of Moses has been wonderfully preserved, more by divine providence than by human care, and though, owing to the negligence of the priests, it lay for a short time buried, from the time when it was found by good king Josiah, 2 Kings 22.8 and 2 Chronicles 34.15, it has continued in the hands of men, and been transmitted in unbroken succession from generation to generation. Nor indeed, when Josiah brought it forth, was it as a book unknown or new, but one which had always been matter of notoriety, and was then in full remembrance. The original writing had been deposited in the temple, and a copy taken from it had been deposited in the royal archives, Deuteronomy 17, 18 and 19. The only thing which had occurred was that the priests had ceased to publish the law itself in due form, and the people also had neglected the wanted reading of it. I may add that scarcely an age passed during which its authority was not confirmed and renewed. Were the books of Moses unknown to those who had the Psalms of David in their hands? To sum up the whole in one word, it is certain beyond dispute that these writings passed down, if I may so express it, from hand to hand, being transmitted in an unbroken series from the fathers, who either with their own ears heard them spoken, or learned them from those who had, while the remembrance of them was fresh. Section 10 An Objection Taken from the History of the Maccabees 1 Maccabees 1, 57 and 58 To impugn the credibility of Scripture is, on the contrary, fitted the best possible to confirm it. First, however, let us clear away the gloss which is put upon it. Having done so, we shall turn the engine which they erect against us upon themselves. As Antiochus ordered all the books of Scripture to be burnt, it is asked, where do the copies we now have come from? I, in my turn, ask, in what workshop could they have been so quickly fabricated? It is certain that they were in existence the moment the persecution ceased, and that they were acknowledged without dispute by all the pious who had been educated in their doctrine, and were familiarly acquainted with them. Nay, while all the wicked so wantonly insulted the Jews, as if they had leagued together for the purpose, not one ever dared to charge them with having introduced spurious books. Whatever, in their opinion, the Jewish religion might be, they acknowledged that Moses was the founder of it. What then do those babblers but betray their snarling petulance in falsely alleging the spuriousness of books whose sacred antiquity is proved by the consent of all history? But not to spend labor in vain in refuting these vile calumnies, let us rather attend to the care which the Lord took to preserve his word, when against all hope he rescued it from the truculence of a most cruel tyrant as from the midst of the flames, inspiring pious priests and others with such constancy that they hesitated not, though it should have been purchased at the expense of their lives, to transmit this treasure to posterity, and defeating the keenest search of prefects and their satellites. Who does not recognize it as a signal and miraculous work of God, that those sacred monuments which the ungodly persuaded themselves had utterly perished, immediately returned to resume their former rights, and indeed in greater honor? For the Greek translation appeared to disseminate them over the whole world, nor does it seem so wonderful that God rescued the tables of his covenant from the sanguinary edicts of Antiochus, 
as that they remained safe and entire amid the manifold disasters by which the Jewish nation was occasionally crushed, devastated, and almost exterminated. The Hebrew language was in no estimation and almost unknown, and assuredly had not God provided for religion, it must have utterly perished. For it is obvious from the prophetical writings of that age how much the Jews, after their return from the captivity, had lost the genuine use of their native tongue. It is of importance to attend to this because the comparison more clearly establishes the antiquity of the law and the prophets. And whom did God employ to preserve the doctrine of salvation contained in the law and the prophets, that Christ might manifest it in his own time? The Jews, the bitterest enemies of Christ. And hence Augustine justly calls them the librarians of the Christian church because they supplied us with books of which they themselves had not the use. Section 11 When we proceed to the New Testament, how solid are the pillars by which its truth is supported? Three evangelists give a narrative in a mean and humble style. The proud often eye this simplicity with disdain because they attend not to the principal heads of doctrine. For from these they might easily infer that these evangelists treat of heavenly mysteries beyond the capacity of man. Those who have the least particle of candor must be ashamed of their fastidiousness when they read the first chapter of Luke. Even our Savior's discourses, of which a summary is given by these three evangelists, ought to prevent every one from treating their writings with contempt. John, again, fulminating in majesty, strikes down more powerfully than any thunderbolt the petulance of those who refuse to submit to the obedience of faith. Let all those acute censors, whose highest pleasure it is to banish a reverential regard of Scripture from their own and other men's hearts, come forward. Let them read the Gospel of John, and, willingly or unwillingly, they will find a thousand sentences, which will at least arouse them from their sloth nay, which will burn into their consciences as with a hot iron and check their derision. The same thing may be said of Peter and Paul, whose writings, though the greater part read them blindfold, exhibit a heavenly majesty which in a manner binds and rivets every reader. But one circumstance sufficient of itself to exalt their doctrine above the world is that Matthew, who was formerly fixed down to his money table, Peter and John, who were employed with their little boats, being all rude and illiterate, had never learned in any human school that which they delivered to others. Paul, moreover, who had not only been an avowed but a cruel and bloody foe, being changed into a new man, shows by the sudden and unhoped-for change that a heavenly power had compelled him to preach the doctrine which once he destroyed. Let those dogs deny that the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles, or, if not, let them refuse credit to the history. Still, the very circumstances proclaim that the Holy Spirit must have been the teacher of those who, formerly contemptible among the people, all of a sudden began to discourse so magnificently of heavenly mysteries. Section 12 Add, moreover, that for the best of reasons the consent of the church is not without its weight. For it is not to be accounted of no consequence that, from the first publication of Scripture, so many ages have uniformly concurred in yielding obedience to it, and that, notwithstanding the many extraordinary attempts which Satan and the whole world have made to oppress and overthrow it, or completely efface it from the memory of men, it has flourished like the palm tree and continued invincible. Though in old times there was scarcely a sophist or orator of any note who did not exert his powers against it, their efforts proved unavailing. The powers of the earth armed themselves for its destruction, but all their attempts vanished into smoke. 
when thus powerfully assailed on every side, how could it have resisted if it had trusted only to human aid? Nay, its divine origin is more completely established by the fact that when all human wishes were against it, it advanced by its own energy. Add that it was not a single city, or a single nation, that concurred in receiving and embracing it. Its authority was recognized as far and as wide as the world extends, various nations who had nothing else in common entering for this purpose into a holy league. Moreover, while we ought to attach the greatest weight to the agreement of minds so diversified, and in all other things so much at variance with each other, an agreement which a divine providence alone could have produced, it adds no small weight to the whole when we attend to the piety of those who thus agree not of all of them indeed, but of those in whom as likes God has pleased that his church should shine. Section 13 Again, with what confidence does it become us to subscribe to a doctrine attested and confirmed by the blood of so many saints? They, when once they had embraced it, hesitated not boldly and intrepidly and even with great alacrity to meet death in its defense, being transmitted to us with such an earnest who of us shall not receive it with firm and unshaken conviction? It is therefore no small proof of the authority of Scripture that it was sealed with the blood of so many witnesses, especially when it is considered that in bearing testimony to the faith they met death not with fanatical enthusiasm, as erring spirits are sometimes wont to do, but with a firm and constant yet sober godly zeal. There are other reasons neither few nor feeble, by which the dignity and majesty of the scriptures may be not only proved to the pious, but also completely vindicated against the cavils of slanderers. These, however, cannot of themselves produce a firm faith in scripture until our Heavenly Father manifest His presence in it, and thereby secure implicit reverence for it. Then only, therefore, does Scripture suffice to give a saving knowledge of God, when its certainty is founded on the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Still, the human testimonies which go to confirm it will not be without effect if they are used in subordination to that chief and highest proof as secondary helps to our weakness. But it is foolish to attempt to prove to infidels that the Scripture is the Word of God. This it cannot be known to be except by faith. Justly, therefore, does Augustine remind us that every man who would have any understanding in such high matters must previously possess piety and mental peace. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. Many free resources as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero three seven three zero, by fax at seven eight zero four six eight one zero nine six, or by mail at four seven one zero three seven A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T six L three T five. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line.
SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, quote, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, quote, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.